Well, on uh, several occasions, uh, as we've been going through the book of Acts, I've already alluded to this. I've called attention that, to uh, the, the reality that the Bible presents to us a philosophy of history, a worldview of the things that come to pass in the lives of God's people. I've tried to emphasize in the past that what is seemingly very secular, very non-miraculous, what is seemingly normal events of everyday life, the Bible says that actually they are not just mere fortuitous things that come to pass with no consequence, but that they are actually re uh, reflections of things that are happening in the spiritual realm. I've often, uh, at least a couple of times in the past, uh, pointed you to the book of Revelation as a, uh, a book that seemingly gives us a peek uh, behind things that happen in our daily lives. In the book of Revelation, we read there that there is a great dragon that is at war with the Lamb. And in chapter 12, we read of the rage of the dragon having been uh, defeated by the Lamb. He directs his rage against the Church of Christ. In the last verse of chapter 12 in the book of Revelation, we read there, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible gives us in many passages a narrative of things that are happening in everyday life. And seemingly, like this passage today, there is nothing said about God from verse 12 to verse 35. There is no seemingly... Uh, supernatural miraculous event and yet the Bible also gives us the the peek behind the curtain in other places to know that even when you don't see God his invisible hand is at work in fact there is a book of the Bible or at least two that are very clearly uh, meant to convey this idea the book of Esther and the book of Ruth are two books where there is seemingly no miracles happening, but yet you, you, you would be blind not to see the, the invisible hand of God in providence in what is seemingly normal everyday life. And our text today speaks of that. It records one of those attacks of the great red dragon of, this, uh, of Satan against the church of Christ, against Paul in particular. And we have recorded for us the deliverance that was brought by our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of history. That same night when the Apostle Paul was comforted by the Lord Jesus saying, Be of good cheer, you will go to Rome, you will be there. That same night there was an intense conflict happening in the heavenly regions, in the spiritual realm. On that night that the Lord Jesus came and comforted Paul with those words, there was a battle that was uh, 
activity in the spiritual realm. And I know it's very hard for us in Reformed Baptist circles to speak of this because it's been spoken too much or, or abused in, in more Pentecostal circles. But there is a spiritual battle going on. And we see this here. The evil forces or the forces of evil were active seeking to prevent the gospel from continuing to be promoted through the testimony of the apostle. And secondly, we see the faithfulness, love, and care of our God in ordering things in such a manner that the whole plot against Paul was unraveled and that effectively Paul was rescued. And it actually, by the end of this day, Paul is one step closer to the fulfillment of that promise that Jesus gave to him that night, that he would go to Rome. It's just that slight bit, slightly more close to Rome by the end of this chapter. Today we will consider this. We will consider the plot. It's the third time in the, in the, in the, in the space of a, of a couple of days that Paul has been uh, in danger of being killed. We'll consider the plot, we'll consider the discovery of the plot, and then we'll see the providence of God in all of this. So firstly, the plot. As I said, the evil forces were active. Whatever the, these more than 40 Jews hatched in the morning, whatever plan they, 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 they prepared... It was conceived in the evening. It was conceived during the night by evil forces, by this demonic host. I love how Matthew Henry expresses this. Just so you know that it's not me just conjuring up some kind of wacky ideas because uh, Matthew Henry, he said this, Satan had filled the hearts in the night to purpose it. Satan had filled their hearts in the night to purpose it. And as soon as it was day, they together per prosecute it, answering to the account which the prophet gives of some who work evil upon their beds. And when the morning is, the, is light, they practice it and are laid under a woe for it. He's quoting from prophet Micah that says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. So there is a plot here. And verse 12 tells us of this plot. Disappointed about what had just happened uh, in the previous day when they were unable to, to convict Paul for, for his crimes in the Sanhedrin. And unhappy and disappointed for having allowed Paul to slip through their fingers on that day, a group of these more zealous Jews uh, came together and determined that they're going to engineer uh, a scheme, a plot to put him to death. That they would kill him, that they would not allow him to get away this time. And they were so, so serious about it that they even took an oath. They bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul. That's how serious they were. 
They anathematized themselves. They accursed themselves. Let it be so to us. So may God do to us and more if we eat or drink anything until Paul is dead. They were putting themselves under divine judgment. They invoked the vengeance of God upon them if they would not kill Paul by the end. And you say, how can men come to a, such a, 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 a position to, to make such a, a violent uh, oath? Why such a hostility on their part towards uh, Paul? Why is it? Well, the simplest way to look at it, again, is to realize that we are, we are living not just in the, in the visible, earthly uh, world, but there is a spiritual battle going on. The, the simplest way of putting it is that they were under the influence of those uh, Satan, uh, under the influence of Satan and Satan's minions. They were being Satan's tools. Satan wants the gospel to be done away with. And he's going to use every instrument at his disposal to accomplish that. So once the plot was agreed upon, they, they went to the Sanhedrin again. Or they, no, not the Sanhedrin. They went to the chief priests and the elders. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they, they went to the chief priests. The, the Sadducees were the, the priestly class. The Pharisees, uh, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, he we spoke about this. The Pharisees were not uh, priests. They were more of the popular uh, religious class. The, 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 the less priestly uh, class, uh, not priestly, priestly class, but the Sadducees were the ones who were priests, and Ananias and, uh, was, was a Sadducee. And they go to them, because they're still uh, upset with Paul, and they tell them about the conspiracy. And you ask, uh, and they, and you ask did they agree with it? Well, verse 20, if you look quickly there, it seems like they agreed. When uh, Paul's nephew goes to uh, Claudius Lysias, he says that the Jews have agreed. It seems to be implied that the, the, the plan was brought to the, to the council, and the council said, oh, what a wonderful, marvelous plan you have there. Let's do that. That's what they did. They seem to have agreed. Whatever happened to the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees only sided with Paul on that occasion, not because they, they, they thought Paul was such a brilliant guy and they, they had a change of heart. They sided with Paul because Paul was uh, my, uh, an enemy of my enemies, is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Paul was there speaking about resurrection to the, to the Sanhedrin and, uh, and, and the Pharisees believe in it and the Sadducees don't. At that point... For the sake of the argument, for the sake of debate, they sided together. But they were certainly not Paul's friends. They were certainly not, had not changed their minds. So the Sanhedrin approved to cooperate or to go forward with this plot. And more than 40 men were set apart uh, to kill Paul before he came into the council. 
there were some someone from the Sanhedrin would come to the to the fortress to Fortress Antonia. He would uh, ask uh, Claudius Lysias to send Paul again, and on the way there, they would kill Paul. That's the plot. But this is how the plot was discovered. From verse 16 to verse 22, we read, Luke tells us about how this wicked plan was unraveled. Verse 16, we read that when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, this, this is very interesting. Not very often you, you, you hear of Paul's family in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament. And it has all kinds of interesting uh, connotations. Paul has a sister. Where is she? Who is she? Was she a believer? What about the, the nephew? Who was he? What, what, what happens to the family? Very, very few times or very little is told by, uh, said by Paul about his family. We don't know much. We know his father was a Pharisee, a Roman citizen, so probably somewhere in the higher uh, class. But we don't know anything else. But we do know that in Philippians 3, Paul says that he has, lost, uh, he has suffered the loss of all things. And usually we tend to think uh, that the loss of all things is... Uh, Spirit, uh, spiritual uh, privileges or uh, national privileges that he had, position, social standing, that he lost all things. But it's not too difficult to, under, to see that he perhaps lost his family in the process of becoming a Christian. That because of Christ, his faith in Christ, his Jewish family disinherited him. It is not too uh, much of a stretch to think that he had brothers and sisters. Well, a sister he has, certainly. But that he had very little to do with them because of his faith in Christ. And all of a sudden, his sister's son appears here. And you ask, what is he doing there in Jerusalem? Maybe he lived there. Maybe he was studying there. Maybe he was a part of the, of the group that was plotting and he had a change of heart. Maybe something happened in the process. But what is interesting is that he found himself in a position wherever it was, however it came to pass, that, that Paul's nephew found himself in a position where he heard of the ambush very early on. Sufficiently early on that he would be instrumental in delivering Paul from this, from this uh, plot that was being hatched. That's what is interesting here. And you see, that's the point that is being made here. This is nothing less than, uh, is, no more, is no less supernatural than if God, in the, in the middle of the, uh, of the street, as Paul was, would be taken to the, to the San Diego, if Paul would have fished Paul, uh, if Paul, if God would have fished Paul out of the hands of his murderers. It is supernatural. God ordered all things in such a way. 
that the, the nephew would be there to hear of this plot that was hatched and to bring it to Paul's attention. In verse 17, we read, Then Paul, when Paul heard of this, he called one of the centurions, one of the commanders of a hundred, and told him uh, to take this young man to the commander, which is the commander of a thousand, to Claudius Lysias, for he has something to tell him. And then he, he is brought there. The, the commander takes the boy aside by hand, asks him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And the boy says, or the, the nephew, I, I'm, he's probably not a, a, a young boy, but the nephew tells him, the Jews have agreed to us, you, you of this. The Jews have agreed to do this. And it's interesting, because here again you see providence. This man, this nephew, this young man, will was able to arrive at the fortress, at the barracks, before the messengers from the Sinedrum. And the whole plot was found out. The scheme is out. The chief captain tells this young man to depart, and he says, don't tell anyone about it. And you ask, why is it that, that Claudius Lysias didn't want anyone to find out about it? Well, one, on the one hand... If the Jews were to find out that Claudius Lysias knew about this, uh, he would cause re a rebellion. And he doesn't want a rebellion in the, in the city. Uh, it's, it's a long hist uh, uh, established fact by the time that Claudius Lysias is the commander in Jerusalem that the Jews like to rebel at any particular time. And his job and his life as well depend on, the, on keeping the the emperor's peace in the city. And the second reason, perhaps, why he didn't want uh, the Jews to find out that he, that he knew about them is that if they knew that he knew, they would devise another plan. So it's better to retain the element of surprise to keep your cards close to your chest. He's a brilliant strategist, you could say, Claudius Lysias. But he's trying to keep a revolution from happening, a rebellion from, uh, from a riot from ensuing. And he devises a plan. Well, he's going to take Paul out of the city and he's going to pass on the hot potato that he found himself with to the governor. He's going to send him to Felix. This way, by them not knowing, they won't see it as an affront. They'll think, oh, he's just following normal procedure and protocol. And he sends Paul there. And thirdly and lastly, before we come to consider some of the, the lessons in this passage, we, found, we find Claudius Lysias' letter. Well, if he knows that there are more than 40 men uh, seeking to kill Paul. So what does he do? He assembles a small army to go and take Paul safely to Caesarea, to Felix, the governor. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of night. 
and he sends a letter with uh, with this small army and the letter is interesting and it conveys to us uh, most of the things that we have already uh, read about or know about from previous weeks but let me just read the letter to you or go through the letter quickly because it is a, it is interesting how um, Claudius Lysias the commander um, presents himself in this in this whole ordeal he sends him to he sends him sends him to Felix to the most excellent governor Felix greetings this is fairly uh, normal greetings in a letter in the, in the first century he says this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them that's correct coming with the troops I me Claudius Lysias or most excellent uh, um, governor I saved him having learned that he was a Roman well this is not quite true you didn't learn that he was a Roman you, you actually were, were about to torture him but, but okay he's writing to his uh, superior he's not gonna he's gonna paint himself in a in a good light and when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the, their council. I found out that he was uh, accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him, deserving of death. And when he told me that the Jews laid in wait for them, I sent immediately to you, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. It does give uh, reminiscing, uh, or not reminiscing, it reminds you of what happened to our Lord Jesus, doesn't you? Doesn't it? With Herod and uh, being sent back, and uh, Jesus being sent back and forth by, by Herod, with the fact that Herod found no, really, no real uh, reason uh, for, for Jesus to be put to death it does remind you of these uh, uh, of what happened to our Lord Jesus in Jerusalem decades before so he was brought there the soldiers as they were did as they were commanded they took Paul by night they uh, they arrived at Antipatris Antipatris was a midway point between Jerusalem and Caesarea it was a kind of a military outpost about 60 kilometers outside of Jerusalem on the way to Caesarea to the north and the next day the horsemen carried on with Paul no longer it was no longer necessary for the for the rest of the army to be there and they returned to Jerusalem when Paul gets to Caesarea the governor reads the letter he just makes a question and it is an important question uh, uh, Felix is trying to assert if he has jurisdiction over this matter so where are you from Paul oh I'm from Cilicia okay Cilicia belongs to my uh, region and he says I will hear you when you when your accusers come and he put him in the praetorium in Herod's praetorium in Herod's palace so here is Paul 
brought to Caesarea, just one step closer to the to Rome, a few miles closer to Rome. And in a passage that speaks very little about God, we see a lot of him in all of this. It tells us about God's care, about God's faithfulness. He keeps his word. He does not sleep concerning his promises. He promised Paul in verse 11 that he would go to Rome. And here it is, 60 miles or 60 miles closer to the promised destination. And it shows God's care as well. Paul was not taken uh, by the Jews and he actually now finds himself in the praetorium, in the house of the governor, in the, in, the, in the palace where the governor lived. Some kind of first-class treatment, I would say. And as in the book of Esther, without ever mentioning God, we see the hand, the divine hand of, of God thwarting the plans of human uh, beings and ordering all things together for the purpose of the advancement of his kingdom. So what are the lessons that we learn in this passage? What are the lessons that we can draw from a passage like this one? Well, first of all, here we see again, as I mentioned in the beginning, we see the, the, the play that exists between uh, human uh, responsibility, human decision-making, and divine sovereignty. There is a perfect integration between these two things. The murder plot was destined to fail because the Lord was overruling. But the way that the Lord overruled was not by some kind of miraculous, miraculous uh, intervention like so often he did. An earthquake in Philippi, for instance. No, this time it was through a young man, Paul's nephew, being brought to know of the plot that was made and God using it to save, to rescue Paul. And this is true of every event in our lives. It is true of every single uh, situation that we find ourselves in, brother and sister, whether good or bad. In our life, we know that God is overruling. And what a comfort, what security we have in this. Another lesson that we learn is that the devil is always at work. In the middle of the night, the devil was plotting to kill Paul, raging against the gospel and God's kingdom. And we too have the same enemy as Paul, Satan, a roaring lion seeking to destroy and to devour, militating against us to prevent us from accomplishing what God would have us do 
So we should not be surprised, brothers and sisters, when we face trials, temptations, when we face opposition in this world. Because it is certainly to be expected that Satan will rise with lies, with deceit, with cunning and violence to seek to oppose the church of Jesus Christ, working, as Ephesians 2 says, in the sounds of disobedience. So that ultimately, as Paul says again to to the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the rulers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It shows us that Satan is an enemy, but it shows us that God is the most wonderful ally we can have and how he works his purposes. Paul had received a promise. On that very same night, on that night, just before the dusk, he had received a promise that his life would not be taken. In the same night that the evil one was placing in the hearts of of wicked men this desire uh, to kill Paul, in the same night, the Lord Jesus Christ was comforting and promising life to Paul. promising Promising him safety. That's why I find that it is so interesting, the, the parallel with, the, the, with King David in the psalm, Psalm 56 or Psalm 59 that we just read. It is that trust that God is at work protecting us. And God can use whatever means he desires. It can be an earthquake in Philippi. It can be a centurion in the riot, in in the temple. It can be a young man, a nephew, as it was here. But in all these things, God protects his people. There is no reason for us to be fearful, to lose heart, Church history, the Bible testifies to the care and the love of our God for his people. That we should not be frightened or discouraged when we face trials and temptations or assaults uh, or opposition and oppression. That actually we should be encouraged. Count it all joy. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, our Lord Jesus says, for so they have done with the prophets that came before you. So let us be encouraged to persevere, to stand steadfast, confident in Christ, because he is the one who is able to save us to the uttermost, and he does so.